Welcome to Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. And I hope you'll join me in an effort to make things better. For your mind, for other people's minds, for the way we think about mental health and what we do about it. This podcast and all the work I've done about mental health over the years is a team effort. We're the team. You, me, the producers, your friends, my friends, all of us, one big team. And we're the good guys. We're not the baddies. We're the super friends. On Depression Mode, we're going to talk about the common mental disorders that affect a lot of people. The ones that create obstacles. Stuff like depression, anxiety, PTSD, eating disorders, trauma, debilitating stress. This is all stuff that when you're going through it, other people can't always see it. It's colorless. It's odorless. It doesn't show up on x-rays or CAT scans. But it's incredibly real. You know that. If you've experienced it or if someone close to you has, these are illnesses we're talking about, and illnesses can be severe. They can be fatal. We're going to talk about them, and there are a few reasons we're going to do that. One is to acknowledge that mental disorders exist and to understand what they are. If you know an enemy before you go into battle, if you know their, their tendencies and their lineup and the weapons they have, you are likely to do much better in that battle. At the heart of this show are stories of personal experience, stories that you might recognize. If you're listening to the show and you hear a well-known comedian or writer or musician say something about what they've been through and you're like, oh my gosh, I've been through that too, or I had the exact same thought. That's good. That's what we're trying to do. That's on purpose. Another reason we're going to talk about mental health is to model that we need to talk about these things. We need to stop shaming people for having mental difficulties. We need to normalize that conversation because people are dying. Silence kills. Stigma kills. Shame kills. And we're going to talk about these issues like people do, like friends do, like teammates do. Remember, I said we're a team. So let me tell you about your teammate here. So I started having problems with my mind when I was in early junior high, like seventh grade, sixth, seventh grade, right around there. And it just felt like I had some sort of alien thing going on. Like my mind could just crash into periods of complete despair I would cry for hours for no particular reason. I just couldn't stop. And it was horrible because I didn't feel like my mind belonged to me. I felt like it could just do these horrible things at a moment's notice. And as far as I could tell, nobody else was going through anything similar to what I was going through. So what I did, the decision I made at that very early age, was to be quiet about it. To keep it a secret and then maybe nobody would ever find out. If I could just keep it hidden until I died, then I won. Now, fast forward a couple of decades. Yes, decades. And I have more stress in my life. I'm in my mid-30s, married, kids, career, mounting stress, and things start to kind of fall apart. I'm jumpy. I'm sullen. I, I shift from, from mood to mood. I have issues with severe anger, not violence, but a lot of anger. And finally, my wife says, will you please go to the doctor? 
And it turns out I have major depressive disorder. And I asked the doctor, well, how long has this been going on? He said, well, what's the earliest to remember it? I said, like seventh grade? And he said, well, it's been going on that long then. But he says there's things we can try. We can try meds. We can try therapy. A lot of people get a lot of good results from meditation or mindfulness or prayer. We could look at your diet. We could look at an exercise plan. There's a lot of ways to tackle this to find the right combination of things that work for you. And so I had just been told I have this chronic mental illness and have had it for decades. And I felt great. Because this problem wasn't something that I was, it was something that I had. I had this illness, and it had been going on for a long time, and it explained so much. And there was a plan to make it get better. And I took some of the steps and some of the approaches, and some of them worked pretty well. Some of them didn't work at all, and I've just gone on tinkering with that and having pretty good results ever since. A few years after I was diagnosed, my older brother Rick died by suicide. He had been dealing with mental illness problems for a long time. He had had substance issues and he had had a lot of depression. And when he was having these problems, he hated himself for it. He felt like he had let himself down, let other people down. He felt that by having an illness, an illness he never would have chosen, that he was bad. And he resisted talking to people about it and he resisted getting help because he thought that it was all his fault. And he died. And I miss him every day. And at his service, and I remember exactly where I was standing when I thought about this, I had this thought that, okay, Rick didn't talk about this and it got worse to the point that he died. But if he had talked to people about this, there's a chance it could have gotten better. If he had talked to a therapist, if he had opened up to his friends or his family about it, there's a pretty good chance he could have gotten some help and gotten better. So if this is our choice in society, don't talk about it and it will certainly get worse or talk about it and it could get better. Why the hell are we choosing silence? Why does our society insist on being quiet about this kind of thing when if we could talk about it, we might be able to help? That's no choice at all. Of course you talk about it. So on this show, on Depression Mode, there will be jokes. I want you to know that. I'm going to have funny people on the show a lot and jokes emerge from people like that. Jokes and funny stories come up when people have been through similar experiences, especially very tough experiences. Listen to a group of soldiers who've been through a war. Listen to them talk when they get together and you will hear laughter. It's how we relate to each other and it's how we reclaim some of the power and humanity for ourselves. It's how we become less afraid and more resolute and it's how we connect with other people. Now, let me tell you why Patton Oswalt is on the first episode of this show. A few years ago, I got an idea of something to do about mental health. The idea kind of came out of the blue. What if I talk to comedians about depression? Comedians who have dealt with it personally, because I had worked with a lot of them. I knew there were many, many comedians who've dealt with depression. It's harder to find a comedian who hasn't, really. Now, I had done a lot of comedy and comedy-related things, writing, whatever. I knew the terrain of the funny people. 
Plus, comedy is about new perspectives on existing things. And think about it, pointing out the things that other people have noticed but have not talked about. So when a comedian talks about something, whether it's what's the deal with airline food or what's the deal with the screaming monster in your head, and you recognize what they're saying, you laugh because you're relieved, because you got caught, and now you're a part of a club, and you're in on something, and it feels a little bit better. So you laugh because people understand you. Back then, I came up with the worst title I could think of for any show just to be funny, and it was The Hilarious World of Depression, and somehow that title never changed. And I set out to make a pilot for my employer at the time of a podcast like that. And my first call was to Patton Oswalt because, well, he's one of the best comedians alive. I could play you a thousand Patton Oswalt clips, but here's one from his Netflix special, Annihilation. Trump becoming president because Obama made fun of him? That would be like, imagine if the head of linguistics at Rutgers made fun of David Lee Roth. <laughs> and then David Lee Roth is like, I'm gonna take your job, zibbly bobbly boop And then he like spends a year and all this money, gets the job, goes cartwheeling into the linguistics department. Yeah, head of linguistics, everybody, Diamond Dave. Bring out the coke and the hookers. And then the guy's like, oh no, we're gonna be talking about the lack of recursion in 16th century Germanic poetry. And Dave's like, I... Hummily, bibbly, zibbly, bubbly, hum, bibbly. No, nothing? Not, not okay. That's Besides just being funny, I also wanted to talk to Patton because he has made a career out of taking difficult, complicated feelings and relating them in a way that people connect with. So I flew out to LA, I interviewed Patton, we turned it into a pilot, we got the green light for a series, but between getting that green light and our premiere, Patton's wife died. The author, Michelle McNamara, died suddenly leaving behind Patton and their daughter, Alice. And I decided not to air that pilot because the Patton I had talked to was not the same Patton that currently existed in the world. His life had been shattered. It was no longer the same Patton Oswald. So fast forward a few years, I'm making depression mode, and Patton Oswald has been moving forward in his life. He's been acting. He's been doing comedy. He's been talking about when his life fell apart. Not because the death of one's spouse is a barrel of laughs, but because he wanted to share the humanity of it. Because that's what he does, and that helps people. This clip is also from Annihilation. Second worst day of my life was the day that my wife passed away. That is the second worst day of my life. The worst day of my life was the day after when I had to tell our daughter. Uh, it, my, my wife passed away while she was at school. So in between screaming and vomiting and 
and freaking out, you know, I talked to the school and I told them what happened and what do I do? And, and the principal talked to me and she was amazing and said, you can't, she can't come home from school and then you tell her and then she has to go to bed. You can't like, oh, you're, you know, you can't send her off into sleep and that trauma's just hit her. Take tomorrow's Friday, keep her out of school, have a fun daddy-daughter morning, and then at noon, tell her, and then be there with her while she works through it. It's gonna be horrible, but just be there, give her the day, do it in the, she said, tell her in the sunshine. That's how she put it. So we, we did it, we, in the morning, we, we went and had fun, and then uh, I sat, I sat down with my daughter, and I looked, I looked at my daughter and destroyed her world. I had to look at this little girl that was everything to me and take everything from her. Something Michelle McNamara said that's been repeated a lot over the last few years, it's chaos out there. Be kind. When I talked to Patton Oswalt, we were in our respective homes, He's been in his house a lot because of the pandemic, and he's been keeping kind of busy. You do a lot of voiceover work. Has that been pretty steady through this? That's what I've heard. Yeah, I've been very lucky in that um, the voiceover work didn't really go away. So that was a, that, thank God, you know, in terms of money and stability, you know, that's still there. Um, even though you're doing voiceover from home. So there's that, well, I woke up and I walked 10 feet to a, to a microphone, right. but you know, it's still, that's, that's how you got to do it, I guess. But you know, you don't have that. Oh, I'm getting like voice work was casual enough as it was. You drove to a studio, you could drive there in sweatpants. Now you're like, I don't even need to get in my car. Like how much little, <laughs> how much, how much little engagement with life do, does my work need to still be called work at this point like that's a real question that comes up sometimes is there a way you could lean a microphone into the bed while supine that is that is the next step i feel like that would be the next like well i just crank it over here and put an earpiece in and hear the lines and repeat them i don't know i mean god <laughs> if that happens though i i i almost i take comfort in the fact that if i were if i was literally like leaning back and doing it it would so you would hear it in the performance that it wouldn't work. Like I would have to at least do the bare minimum of standing up and walking towards a microphone. If you could get cast as some sort of Howard Hughes type character. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I've always said if there could be some kind of TV series where I play like a, a paralyzed detective where I'm just lying <laughs> in a bed. Oh my God. I watched that movie. What's that one with uh, Denzel Washington, the bone collector, and he's just sitting in a bed. Uh -huh. Like, oh my God, this is the best. <laughs> the best acting job you could oh, possibly yeah, have. I'm so jealous of him right now. <laughs> this is awesome. I know you've talked before about dealing with depression, especially earlier in your stand-up career. Has it always been a healthy thing that you got from audiences in a stand-up environment, or was it kind of a codependent thing sometimes? Sometimes it was codependent in that I was being very competitive and comparing and contrasting myself with other people, friends and colleagues that were doing it. So that would that would go into the negative sometimes and it wouldn't be helpful. But then uh, the times that I could rise above that and rise above the, that level of self-doubt and neediness in myself and actually be excited for other people and happy for them and inspired by what they were doing, 
that's when it became helpful. The, the minute I started rooting for people that I thought were my competitors is when it, it started curing my depression. Like you have a reputation now for your kindness to young comics. Like every young comic I talk to has a Patton Oswalt was surprisingly <laughs> like benevolent and kind to me. And I, and it changed my life. Did that just sort of emerge as well? Or is that a, is that a conscious life philosophy? I think that emerged. It, it was a, a number of things. You know, when I started doing comedy in 88, there wasn't a lot of like older comedians helping younger comedians. It was very much like um, every man for himself. And it was very, very, because the boom was ending. So everyone was afraid. And also the, there just weren't that many, the, the, the people's view of what success in comedy was, was so narrow. It was, you got a tight five minutes, a clean five minutes. You went on the tonight show, you did a good set, you got to the couch and then you got a sitcom and that's how you do it. Mm. So people had a very limited view as to what, how you're supposed to follow your career. So the, the, the generation that I came up with, I guess you could call it the alt generation or, you know, in terms of comedy, the early nineties, we had a, we had a much broader view of maybe what success looked like and what success was, even though we could still be competitive with each other. And then the wave that's coming after us is so, I've never seen a ratio of genuinely talented, genius, creative people be so high in a group. Like, you know, in the eighties, there was a lot of comedians, but there was only like a handful that was really kind of transcendent. And then I think that that amount got a little bigger in the nineties. And now the aughts, the, the gen Ys, the gen alpha, whatever you want to call it, the people coming up are so amazing. And it's so inspiring that I don't, I'm not going to be, I, I never have to worry about becoming one of those comedians that sits around going, the last time comedy was funny was and it's like <laughs> the year they were in their twenties. Right. My, my generation of comedians were very, very good. But the ones coming after us are so amazing and they keep us working and try to keep us fresh because we see what's coming that I'm really grateful for that. I don't have to worry about becoming one of these boring curmudgeons. Mm -hmm. It's all about that. The, the last time things, you know, what the, the bet, the absolute best time to be alive is right now. Mm -hmm. A week ago sucked a month ago, sucked a year ago, sucked. <laughs> The best time to be alive is right now. There's no such thing as a golden age. There just isn't. Do people reach out to you for advice on, on mental health? I've gotten some questions about that. And I'm always very, very open about, um, hey, you know, I uh, have been in some pretty serious depressions and it's something I still deal with. Get talk therapy, get meds. There's no shame in either one. You know, st stop with this, stop with this beautiful loser kind of the sexy loner that I just keep it all. It's like you're letting movies and TV and comic books influence you. That's not real life. Go to go talk to a fucking shrink and get some goddamn meds. Fucking Robert Crumb started doing positive self-reinforcement loops. If that guy fucking had to go talk to a therapist, then you do too, all right? Fucking stop it. You're, you, I remember I was talking to my dad one time about the first time I went to therapy, I was so ashamed and I was like, can't believe I got to go into therapy. Like, I thought I could be a man and fucking do this. And then I was like, you know, Humphrey Bogart was never in therapy. And then my dad said, yeah, but he smoked a carton of cigarettes a day. So he was in therapy. So, you know what I mean? And also, if he'd had therapy, he might not have died from fucking lung cancer. So maybe go to some goddamn therapy, you idiot. Like, it was just that 
you know, you're, you're letting these images of, and again, they're very comforting, heroic images, but yeah, you, you go, go get some fucking help. More with Pat Oswalt in a moment. Before the break, Pat Oswalt was sharing his learned wisdom about mental health, like how maybe Humphrey Bogart wasn't living the ideal life. Okay, so now I'm going to be I'm going to be not my own voice. I'm going to be somebody who uh, speaks in cliches, uh, but I don't want to lose my edge. I don't want to no, I don't want to get treatment and then not be able to be funny anymore and not not be dangerous and edgy. So I'm talking to Patton on Zoom right now, and for people who are just listening on audio, he has his hand over his eyes and is shaking his head wearily. Well, I'm 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 half shaking it because that was the shit that I prescribed. I even did bits about that. Like if yeah. Edgar Allan Poe had Prozac, he wouldn't have written The Raven. Uh, yeah, actually, he still would have written The Raven, and he wouldn't have been marrying his 13 year old cousin and blowing his money every week and and then found dead drunk in a gutter in Baltimore. That's what would have happened. You can do both. You're you know you're out of your mind if you think that you know I've got to be. Ri- uh, uh, Nobody, you are trying to emulate this romantic vision that has been handed down to you by someone who was trying to sell you something. They were trying to sell you the the image or the idea of the tormented romantic hero that still does brilliant stuff. That's, I mean, you know, that it's that whole myth of um, Salieri and Mozart, where, you know, Salieri is like, oh, this guy's, He's a fucking train wreck of a human being, but his music will live forever. In reality, Salieri was insanely successful during his time, had a great life, probably had syphilis at the end of his life because of all the women he fucked, started saying that he killed Mozart. Mozart wrote great music. Nobody at the time envied that guy's life. They were like, oh, I wish I could be like, they wish they could write like Mozart. Nobody wanted to fucking live like him because his life was a fucking train wreck. You bring up film. People gravitate to the cliches in mental in uh, from film and the characters in film, but they also expect your experience with mental health to be like a movie. In that, you know, here is the hero. Here is the hero going on a journey. Here is the the big confrontation at the beginning of Act Three, and then there's the resolution, and then depression is behind me forever, and then OCD is a thing of the past because I've, I'm older now, and it's so not that way. It, it, it's, a, it's a terrible script, mental health. It's all One of the most is. dangerous scenes I think I've seen in a movie, and it's, it's otherwise, it's a fine movie. I'm not putting the movie down, but it's very dangerous in that in Goodwill Hunting, when Matt Damon has his huge catharsis scene where he's crying, and Robin Williams holds him. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. But not your fault yet, which is a great scene. But then the next scene, Robin's like, I guess I don't need to see you anymore. Like, I cured you. You're fine now. Which, like, in reality, if you have that kind of breakdown with your therapist, they're like, I need to see you immediately tomorrow. And I need to, like, now we need to double the times I need to see you. Because now you're a raw fucking nerve. We've just taken you apart. We've got to carefully put you back together again. You don't go, all right, out into the world with you. Off you go. Like, that is such a dangerous idea. And I think it's what puts a lot of people off therapy. I went to therapy for six months and nothing happened. Actually, something was happening. You just couldn't see it because you think of therapy like in the films. And that's mm-hmm. not how it fucking works. One of the most helpful and important movies, beyond it being a brilliant film, is M. Night Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense. Because at the end of the movie, it's this about this kid who can see dead people and he's 
tormented and you're hoping that Bruce Willis can help him. And at the end of the movie, there's the great twist. But what you people fail to remember about the end of that movie, which is so brilliant, is one, Bruce Willis asks the little kid, what do you think these dead people are trying to say to you? In other words, maybe you're not the most important thing here. Maybe this isn't being done at you. Maybe they're in just as much distress as you are and you just happen to be in their way. And at the end, you notice the little kid isn't cured. He's still going to see dead people, but he approaches it in a different way. So that's the same way as like, no, you're going to be depressed. All, you're going to have depression all your life. That's going to be there, but in how you man, you can manage it so that it benefits you. You know what I mean? Mm. So this kid is like, you realize, oh, he's going to grow up to be wise beyond his years. He's going to be empathetic beyond most the way most people are because he's going to, instead of running and screaming and freaking out, he's going to go talk to me. What is wrong with you? And he'll mm. like, and it's such an amazing that I, I more depressed people should see the sixth sense and go, that's how you deal with depression. You will never be fully rid of it, but you'll be able to live with it so that it won't be fucking with you. I've had people ask me, do you wish that you had never been depressed in the first place? And I said, well, I don't know, but I wouldn't want to give up the wisdom for anything. I wouldn't want to give up the tools that I've developed. I don't even say it that way. When they go, do you wish you'd never been depressed? I'm like, of course I wish I'd never been depressed. Are you kidding? That would have been fucking awesome. (laughs) However, I'm taking the compensations from it and trying to roll with it. But to ask anyone, oh, do you wish you'd never been depressed? Like, no one's ever going to go, oh, no, I'm so glad I went. No, (laughs) absolutely. I would love to not be depressed. But that's not that. But there's no there's no magic. Lamp. So so that's such a that's such a non helpful question. Yeah. Just go. So what are the ways that you manage to benefit from it? But just always t- when you talk to a depressed person, just always assume, of course, they would they would be happy never to have been depressed. Right. Of course. What are you kidding? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, it's like when they say, you know, I just don't want to take a pill that makes me happy all the time. And it's like, well, first, it doesn't work that way. And second, why not? <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Yeah, exactly. When people, oh, my God, when people go, on, I'm not going to take some kind of happy pill. It's like, yeah, you're not going to take a happy pill because those don't fucking exist. <laughs> the, the best that antidepressants do for you is they give you that breathing space to go, oh, okay, here comes the depression. What do you want? Come on. I'll talk. You can talk. You, you don't get to you don't get to drive the car but I'll take you maybe close to where you want to go. Where do you want to go today? Okay, we're going to go there. And then I got other shit to do. (laughs) I'll drop you off. It does for you, but it does not. There's, oh my God, if there was a fucking happy pill, I would take it today. Sure. They don't fucking exist. (laughs) You talk about the benefits that the kid in the sixth sense earns, you know, the, the empathy, the wisdom. What have your benefits been? What have you learned from a lifetime of, of managing this thing? Well, it's definitely given me and sometimes I don't take advantage of it, but when I do, I'm very happy that I do. It gives me that beat when someone is being an asshole or someone is seemingly being cruel or evil or whatever. And it and I, sometimes I take a beat and go, what happened to this person? That they're, Who got a hold of this person young and made them act and, and turned them into this person? And like, you know what I mean? Like, like I, I rarely ascribe it. And, and by the way, I have met some people that, I've gotten into their background and realized, oh no, you actually were born this way. You were, you were born into a very loving, open, progressive family, and you're a fucking douchebag. You know it, that happens too. But for the most part, I try, try, try to 
make um, friends out of enemies rather than crushing enemies. Mm -hmm. When you're young, you want to crush enemies because you're insecure and you're terrified. When you get older, you're like, maybe I'll try to turn these enemies into friends. And also what I get is that you're just, you're never the fucking target. You really aren't. And, and, and if you can get over yourself in that way and go like, why is all this happening to me? Like, that is such an egotistical, and, and in a weird way, it's like a humble brag. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess, I guess I'm just a magnet for all this stuff. You want, yeah, because you want to be the, you, you're not the target. You're, you just happen to be in the way of whatever evil shit people are spewing out into the world in general. They're, they're not looking for you. They're looking for anyone to get in, in the way of their shit spray. Right. Yeah. You're nearby. You're not, you're not the target of it. Oh my God. That's it. I'm, you're just nearby. That's all you are. You're just nearby. Right. And what, but what it lets you know is, oh, wait a minute. I can just step out of the way. So I've been catching up or rewatching some specials. And when you talk about depression, talk about loss and talk about some, some awful things, you honor the full weight of these things. And then the comedy doesn't feel dismissive or cheap or glib. It's, it's a, you know, you, you convey the weight of all the just terrible shit you've either been through or observed. And how do you do that? Like, how do you, is that, is that a, a writing challenge or is that like a personal empathy bravery challenge? It's more of a years of experience of picking the wrong targets and being insecure and wanting to be the smartest one in the room rather than wanting to be the most curious and open in the room and the least, Mm. you know, to try to understand without judging, which I think comes with age. So, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm an, I'm an atheist that isn't mad at religion. I'm a, um, you know, I'm a Democrat that's not mad at Republicans. You know, there's specific people sometimes that I can get really angry at, but for the most part, I try to be as open-minded. And then I also always, as much as I can try to keep in mind, whatever foibles or weaknesses or shittiness I'm pointing out in other people, I probably have an antenna for it because it exists in me on some level. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think about what's going to sell? I mean, as a comedian, you must think about what's going to get a laugh. Yeah, I, di- I certainly did that early in my career. You know, I wanted to build a career and I wanted to make money doing it. And now, but but what's weird is what I learned is the stuff that, that advanced my career the most and made me the most money was always the stuff that I thought was funny first, that I was the most amused by. The shit that you are truly most amused and surprised and startled by that always translates to an audience and always captures people way more than when you're going, okay, what is the thing that's going to land the most with the most amount of people? That kind of calculation drains the surprise and life force out of any work and then eventually kind of cuts its legs off. So when you're doing a show, when you're doing a special and you know you're going to you're going to talk about some things that uh, are pretty personal. Is this, is this a sit down and, and write these things down? Or is it a, are you inventing things or are you transcribing the thoughts that are going through your head all the time? I'm doing a little bit of both and then trying to take it on stage as much as I can in little rooms and work out the work. Cause I, I want it to come out of my skull conversationally and feel like it's an actual thought that I'm expressing like a real person. But yeah, I mean, it, it, well, if I'm going to talk about a subject that maybe be might be dicey or, or maybe just not even controversial, just might be something that a lot of the people are like, I don't know what he's talking about. 
I don't ever come at it with a fuck you, you know, like this is my thing. I come at it with a, I am so enthusiastic about this. And I think I will be able to talk about it in a context that you'll get it, even if you've never been in that, you know, even if you've never heard of this or, you know, so I, you know, I would do stuff about Tom Carvel. No one on the West Coast knew who Tom Carvel was, but I did it in a way that I was so clearly amused by it and delighted Mm -hmm. by it. They're like, yeah, I'm just going along with it. I'm on board. One of your bits that was really changed a lot of my perspectives on on mental health was the frozen food aisle at Toto's Africa plane. <laughs> the bit I'm referring to is from Patton's 2014 special, Tragedy Plus Comedy Equals Time. Again, I don't know if I want to, I'm just looking at them. Uh, Thai noodles and peanut sauce, okay. Pasta primavera, mm. And as I'm looking at all of them, Toto's Africa started playing (laughs) on the ambient music. I don't know what it it was, the combination of 11 a.m. on a Tuesday, Lean Cuisines, Toto's Africa. I have never felt more peacefully, effortlessly, joyously suicidal (laughs) in, it wasn't, it wasn't even despair or if I'd had a gun right here, I would have just brought it up one smooth movement. Just like going, oh, they have French crust pizza. Do, 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 do. The first time I heard that, I was like, something just happened. Like, it, it, it was so specific and so strange. And lots of parts of it were familiar to me with my own mental health journey. Some parts were just odd. But I, I guess it was that specificity, but it really seemed like somebody going out on a rope with some really obscure thing that made them laugh and going into very dangerous territory and winning, you know, like making it good comedy in the process. You know, that's weird. Like that never felt like dangerous territory to me only because not that I'm, I'm I am, I am not a courageous person, but that whole thing was so genuinely amusing to me. And it literally was what there's every now and then I get a bit that I am literally describing something that happened verbatim. I do not have to add any kind of flourish or, mm. you know, flair de lis to make it more comedic. I'm just like, here is a thing that happened and I say it and 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 you can see that I I'm so delighted by the absurdity and also that thing too, what what cracks me up is the banality of it. That yeah. that, that the most banal shit brought me to an epiphany. You know, so so like you're always waiting for we're going to hike out to these this waterfall where apparently at the right time of day you see a waterfall. But but like the frozen food aisle at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday is not where you're looking for an epiphany. And you almost feel like the epiphany itself is laughing its ass off going, hey, fuck, he's going to remember he took that hike to the waterfall. I didn't fucking feel anything. Watch, I'm going to fucking I'm going to wait till he's in the goddamn frozen food. I'm going to give him this mess. This is going to be so fucking hilarious. And like that, that like cracks me up. More from Patton Oswalt in just a moment. What do you think people get wrong about depression? Fucking everything. Everything. I mean, <laughs> they really do. They get so much. I mean, what's weird now is there seems to be this rebellion against the years of how badly both depression and its cures were depicted in media, in films, in books, that now 
on shows like You're the Worst and BoJack Horseman and stuff like that, where they really, really show you this is how, well, this is what depression is like, and this is how it's like getting out of it. And, you know, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was amazing at that. Yes. It was absolutely amazing where you're like, I was not expecting this at all. Like, this just totally blew me away. A big thing in in therapy, at least in a lot of therapies I've heard of, is when you're suffering to know, like to fully feel what you're going through, to honor it, to recognize it, and to, to live the experience instead of shoving it away. A few years ago, when Michelle passed away, were you able to identify the feelings that, that kept coming back, the recurring feelings that emerged in that time? Well, I was very, very fortunate in that right after it happened, my friend Michael Penn gave me C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed, which was C.S. Lewis was probably one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. His wife died. And mm. he, at, at the moment it was happening, he wrote this very slim memoir about exactly what he was going through. And he nails it so well, it absolutely he just do, does not look away from the ugliness of it and the awkwardness of it. The first line of the book is, I had no idea that grief felt like terror. And, mm. and it, it feels like terror. You're terrified. You're terrified because you feel like I don't, I don't think I can live. I don't think like I would, it, it is very terrifying to feel comfort in going, Hey, if I died, that would actually be okay. That would actually be, that's one of the few times where I was going, that would be a better alternative to this waking reality is me dying. I'd be totally okay with that. And that was really, that is terrifying. You can't understand how that level, that level of comfort with darkness is another form of terror. Reading C.S. Lewis let you know somebody else had, had gone through this and... Was that a guide for you? I had one. I had so many guides. I mean, it was that yeah. book. It was, you know, talking to my shrink. It was talking to um, friends who had also, you know, this guy, Peter Sprite, whose wife had passed away, was amazing. Not just for me, but for giving me books to give to Alice because his daughter went through the same thing. Mm. Um, you just, you know, you take comfort in your friend. And then also <sighs> these random, out of nowhere... I remember a couple months after Michelle passed, I got an offer to be on that show, Those Who Can't, which is on TBS. And yeah. and, and my manager was like, just go do some work. Just go. And, and it was it was actually comforting to go, here is your script, learn these lines, show up and do this. Like you're not generating anything. You are showing up and you are delivering a piece of work. And when I was there, and right after Michelle died, this friend of mine back in Virginia, her husband died. And then a month after that, this friend of mine, his sister died and all of them very sudden. And it was like, and I'm sitting there and uh, I did a scene with Susie Essman, who I've known very casually. She's a really nice person, very funny comedian. Susie Essman, you know, you see her on Curb Your Enthusiasm and she's like, how you doing? You, you doing okay? I'm like, yeah. And I don't know why I decided to open up to her because I was just such a raw nerve. But I said, it's just weird. You know, my wife passed away. Then my friend's husband like passed away like literally a month after that and then my friend's sister just died and i feel like am i this avatar of death now am i bringing death to everyone i know 
you know, and then she went, sweetie, you're not that important. And, <laughs> and, and she said it in kind of a bitchy way, but it helped. I, I, it, it was like this bucket of cold water hitting me. And like, it was like, she brought me back to life of like, oh yeah, that's right. It's just random stuff that's happening. And she said it too, in, in such a, she didn't try to, she didn't try to sugarcoat it and go, honey, no, what I'm about to say is she <laughs> like, no, this motherfucker needs to hear this and he needs to hear it like this. And, and, and she, it was, that was one of those moments. I've never forgotten that for just for her to go, honey, you're not that important. And then we yeah. went on the scene and it, it was like, again, was, it, it was like being in the frozen food aisle. I was not expecting Susie Essman <laughs> in between takes on those who can't to go, let me just pull you back into life by saying the harshest thing I can to you. The harshest thing she can say to you, but yet one that relieves you from that crushing responsibility. Absolutely. It was, again, it was the harshest, but it was the most life-affirming thing. Sometimes the most life-affirming thing is um, when, what's the classic? And we ask the universe, why me? And the universe is like, who are you again? I Like, <laughs> it's not, you're not important. It's not, don't, you're not the fucking target here. Yeah. It actually gives you more freedom and it gives you more control over your life to go, I'm not that, I'm not this cursed, doomed thing. I'm a person yeah. that some stuff has happened to. Like everyone yeah. else. Right. And 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 it's up to you to keep walking. I mean, the, the best advice, I lost my brother to suicide. And, and the best advice I got after that was, I went to a therapist and I said, but when when do I get over it? Like, when 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 does this expire? When do I get over it? And he said, oh, it's it's the wrong preposition. You're going to walk through it. It's not it's not over. You, you just got to keep walking through and you're going to be walking through it forever. That is, oh my God. Yeah. That is awesome. That's a great, phrase. yeah, that's why, like, the shrink that I'm, that I see now that I've been seeing for years, I started seeing him because after Michelle had Alice, she went through a really bad postpartum depression. Mm. Really, really bad. So she went to this therapist who I now see who's a fucking miracle worker, but he said two things. One, he goes, I wish that we could outlaw the phrase, if you go through postpartum depression, because it makes women who go through it feel like, well, I'm less than I'm one of the ones who everyone goes to postpartum depression. Your whole fucking body was just shifted around. You're just going to go through it. That should be, that should be part of the story of childbirth should be. And then the mommy gets sad or gets manic or something. And then she's fine. That's what happens. And then yeah. the other thing was he started giving her some antidepressants and she, so she took it that first week and then saw him the next week and said, look, I know these antidepressants don't work for like six weeks, but I started taking them and I've, I've instantly felt better. I know it's just a placebo effect, but I am feeling better. Like, is that okay? And he goes, he goes, you want my medical opinion? She goes, yeah. He goes, who gives a shit? It's working. Why are you, why are you questioning it working? It's working. Enjoy it. That, that kind of attitude was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's my guy. You're upset that it works for you? What's, what's wrong? Yeah, shut up and go feel better. What's fucking wrong with it, idiot? <laughs> Why and how did you decide to to tell the story of Michelle's passing in your special annihilation? Uh, you know what? Again, I don't have that. There wasn't that moment. There was all there was was this. I've done stand up since I was nineteen. I kind of don't know anything else, and it's kind of who I am and I and I was I was honestly and that was part of that 
really scary comfort in, hey, I could just die and I'd be okay. Like, I just, I don't care. And I, and there was that comfort in like, I'd probably never do stand up again. You know, I'm just, I'm done. And then that guy, and then it would just, like a few months afterwards, I just started going on stage around town, little shows here and there. And a couple times I didn't talk about it. And, and you could, the audience felt weird because mm. they could sense something. And so it felt weird to not to talk about it. So then I started going into it and talking about it. And so again, wasn't that, there was never a specific decision. It just kind of happened sloppily through a lot of bad nights, a lot of bad nights, like shaky and not really knowing how to be funny and and not knowing the language anymore and it was fucking scary man it was really scary but um you know it, it just was i can't not talk about it because i because i would seem insane if i didn't if i went up and was like well what's with these marvel movies are you right people are like oh god he's he's fucking snapped look at him you know yeah did you feel a responsibility to talk about it i didn't feel a responsibility i felt a need which I think is too, because sometimes a responsibility is I have a gun to my head, but I don't need to be doing this, but I, but I should. It yeah. was, it was absolutely, it was a very, it ended up being a pretty selfish need. You mm. know, I'll admit that it was very selfish because it was helping me. And, and I would do anything to help myself at that point, anything to, to claw out of the darkness. I think it, it helped other people though, too. You must've known it was going to help other people. You know what? I actually didn't know that because really? I, there were some uh, accounts of, grief that I read that didn't help me that if anything made it even worse. So I'm like, for all I know, I'm going to make things worse for people, you know? So you don't know how your advice will be or not. I, I also, I wasn't giving advice. I'm like, here's what happened to me. And here's how I dealt with it for better or worse. You know, there were good ways I dealt with it in bad ways. And here's how I did it. So I didn't know if that would help anybody. I had no idea. Yeah. And I'm realizing it's it's a long time since the last time I interviewed you, and you you <laughs> you got married. Did people think, oh, okay, now he's fine, now everything is is solved? Because you, I mean, it was joyous to watch on social media. Patton's in love. Patton is married. Love is wonderful. It's a good thing. But it's did did people think, oh, okay, now it's all taken care of. Now he's okay. I mean, if they did, they. I mean. Meredith certainly didn't think that she knew what she was getting into. It's like, I still know there's stuff you're going to need to work through and, yeah. you know, stuff you have to deal with that first anniversary, the second, like, and then I, in, and then once I made the documentary and stuff. So I'm with someone who helps me deal with it. I'm with this person who is so, as, as Meredith says, you know, she, Meredith's whole thing is she, I try to elevate people. She wants, she goes, I want to elevate everybody around me because if I elevate everyone around me, it makes my world better. So she's all about, can I elevate people? So how can I elevate you? And so I don't know how I met her or deserved her, but, you know, it happened. And, um, and then, you know, what was, what was funny was I got the, I got the usual from some, uh, classically anonymous anime avatar people online, the, um, oh boy, that was really quick. That was really quick. And I got, luckily this one widow, um, wrote to me on Facebook and said before, I, I know that there's people giving you shit, but let me just tell you. My husband died. I waited 10 years to get married and I had people going, uh, she waited too long. This is like, like there's no, there will always be someone who's upset or thinks that uh, this doesn't, I'm not comfortable with this. It was like, well, you know what? You're, that's You don't have to be. You don't have to be. I, I, I'm not living. I don't work for you. If you cut me a, a paycheck every week, I'll, I'll look after your comfort. But if not, 
we're going to have to part ways. <laughs> you're, you're not currently available for freelance comfort work. Yeah, anyway. exactly. So, so that really put it into perspective. It's like, there's no such thing as the right time to wait. There will be somebody upset for some reason. Yeah. A lot of people who've dealt with anxiety disorders, depression disorders, it's the oldest voice in their head because it's been going on since they're 20 years old, 15 years old. And it, you know, it, it like, for me, I'm like, I sometimes have these thoughts that I think are wisdom, but are really, really stupid. And I'm like, why am I listening to this? Cause I'm so used to listening to it. I think it's my own thoughts. It's, it's the disorder. Do you still have patterns and thoughts and kind of hitches that go way, way back before comedy, before marriage, before fatherhood, before any of those things? I have stuff probably from when I was five or six. I remember, you know, when I was five, my dad was in the military, so we had to move a lot. And one year we moved from Tustin Meadows, California to Virginia, and we moved on Halloween. And we had to leave in the afternoon. And so I'm watching everyone go out to go trick-or-treating on this block where they would close the block off and everyone would like, it was just paradise. And so I'm watching all my friends about to do something that I'm not a part of now. And mm -hmm. so I can trace my fear of abandonment, fear of being left out to that. Like there's all these little, as you get older, you can look at things without judgment and go, Oh, it came from that. And then I exploded it because I was little and I thought that that block was the world and I mm -hmm. thought the world was crumbling. And then and now I've internalized that as this and blah, blah, blah. There you go. How do you find those connections? How do you say this is happening because of this thing way back here? Trial and error, especially yeah. when you when you when you go on real specific spirals. First, first here, the first thing is you got to go, go on a bunch of spirals where you don't pull yourself out of it and you don't go to the roots. And then you got to remember how awful those felt. And then you got to do one where you're like, OK, wait a minute. Here it comes. Let's actually try to look at where, you know. So, again, it's trial and error. There's no there. Again, it's not. Goodwill hunting where you prime and you're okay. My thanks to Patton. Now, when I was starting Depression Mode and needed a theme song, I called Rhett Miller. He's brilliant. He's kind. He did the theme song for my last show. He has great hair. I love everything about Rhett Miller. And we talked on the phone about what we were going to try to do with this show and what kind of song might fit it. And I swear, like within an hour of hanging up the phone, he's sending me a demo. And that's what turned into the song Building Wings. Always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings Building wings, building wings, building wings Building wings, 
So that's episode one of billions. You'll want to check out episode two as well. YouTuber, BuzzFeed legend, and author Kelsey Dara gets really honest about her mental health journey. Really, really quite very honest. I've always been that person about like, if if no one's talking about it, how are we going to fix anything? And so sometimes, yeah, that has to do with vaginas or open relationships or chronic pain and, and mo- more specifically mental health. And I, I just think... I don't have a lot of shame, I guess, in being honest. That episode is available right now. Go check it out. And here's the thing with Depression Mode. This is your show, too. I'm just the guy speaking into the microphone. This is, this is everybody's show. Let us know who you want me to interview, what issues you want to hear talked more about. We want your requests. Our email address is depressmode at maximumfun.org. Or you can also send us a letter by mail if you can figure out how. We love it when you recommend Depression Mode to friends. It's a show that might really help them out. Also, something that matters a lot. Hit subscribe, give us five stars, write reviews. That helps more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of getting those mental health conversations happening. And you can help support the show directly with much-needed and highly appreciated contributions at MaximumFun.org join. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. We'll be on TikTok as soon as I learn how to dance about major depressive disorder. I think it involves the band The Smiths somehow. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available right now on Substack. Search that up. It's very informative and also entertaining. I'm on Twitter at John Moe, all one word, same on Instagram. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our theme song, Building Wings, is written and recorded by Rhett Miller. He's an actual rock star, and he's our friend. I am so glad you were here to listen to the show. You're a good person, and you're not alone. And I want to thank some friends who helped me a lot over the past year when I needed it and helped Depression Mode come into being. Jesse Thorne and Bikram Chatterjee from Max Fun. Thank you for the new home. Thanks also to Chris Bannon, Peter Clowney, Jennifer Gates, Josh Lindgren, Nick Kwa, Misha Youssef, Nora McInerney, Jessica Cordova Kramer, Stephanie Whittles Walks, Izzy Smith, Chrissy Pease, Bill Radke, and Jill Moe, and my family. And most of all, to you listeners and supporters who have come over from the old place to the new place, thank you. Welcome. I hope you like the new place as much as I do. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun, and that's a team I'm thrilled to be on. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.